DEI is become the equivalent of saying race. So companies Correct. keep saying they're diverse, but the problem is diversity is not diverse without accessibility for people with disabilities. And diverse is not about race. And it's irritating every time people discuss the word diversity and race is interchangeable. They are not. The They're same not. way the word disability does not mean wheelchair access. The access is not wheelchair access. It's not interchangeable. And so people are misusing it and people are misappropriating the word. And diversity includes people with disabilities. And so I've been to numerous of these conferences, DEI. I don't see anybody with a disability. I don't even see the discussion. Welcome to the World Class Leader Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high performance and leadership advisor, executive coach and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. And today I'm very happy to have with me uh, a new guest, Janice Linz. Janice is an accomplished consultant advocate across the hearing access, advocacy, and related political spectrum. She's the CEO of Hearing Access and Innovations, which is the leading company dedicated to helping the world's businesses, cultural and entertainment institutions, government agencies, and mass transit organizations improve their accessibility for people with hearing loss. The proposed over-the-counter OTC hearing aid regulation cited her FDA testimony in the full notes. She will graduate as well from Harvard Kennedy School in 2023. She also a travel consumer education writer. She has traveled to 195 countries, which is incredible, and also territories and unrecognized nations. So Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. Perfect. So today we're going to talk uh, about a very interesting topic because it's not something that normally we talk on on our podcast, but it's such an important topic. So that's why I'm very very happy to have Janice with me. So because we're talking about diversity and inclusion and with a specific problem, so the hearing problem. But before stepping into the the topic, the main topic, I think it's very important to ask Janice. You know, what's your story, Janice? Well, thank you, Andrea. Um, my story happened by happenstance. I, you know, I, I have a marketing background, went to law school, and then I had a child with a hearing loss. Um, and when my daughter was diagnosed, the doctor, right after telling me about her hearing loss, said, don't worry, there are special schools for her. And I, I hadn't even wrapped my head around the diagnosis when the bar for her entire life was lowered. Mm. And I was unwilling to live the life that this doctor thought was my new life. So I decided it was easier to change the world than to lower my standards. And like, that sounds really funny, but I actually really believe that. And I have, I was just unwilling to go along with this. I didn't want to be part of this world. 
And I was like, I don't know why I had to. So I, that's what I said about doing is changing the world. And that's amazing. I think most of the successful businesses, honestly, they've been built when the founders, they had such a very high level of motivation, passion, purpose, dedication to get something that was not available at the time. And I think that's already speaks highly about you because you had a personal challenge, personal problem, but you didn't accept the status quo. You challenged that and, and you did it by finding a solution to your problem. Yes, but you have to understand, I grew up with a mother who never accepted anything, right? Like mm. my mother was one of these people who just like, she always challenged, you know, the status quo. So I grew up that it never occurred to me to not accept the status quo. That was just the way I was raised. Like you always, if you can make it better, you do that. That is just your role. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I'm glad actually that you said that because I, I strongly believe that our, our story and our past experiences, they're really forming our own behaviors and our attitude. And, uh, and family is like a double-edged sword, right? Because if you grow up in, a, in, a, in, in an environment where they foster exactly what you mentioned, right? The fact of you know, challenging the status quo or not being satisfied with mediocrity or accepting you know, what other people say is very different than growing up in an environment when you know, maybe your family, they don't really challenge that you know, as you described. So I think that is a fantastic opportunity. And uh, so I think as education has a, a lot of to do with our attitude and mindset that we build for, for ourselves, right? I didn't necessarily have like opportunities or an education. I just had a mother who was defiant. Right? <laughs> my, mother, my mother just like would not accept mediocrity from people like, you know, she went to a store and they advertised something and then they said they had it and then they didn't. My mother would say, I want to speak to the manager. So when you grow up with someone who's already asking to speak to the manager, you don't think that that's abnormal, right? That was my, my norm. Yeah, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't say like I grew up with, you know, opportunities. I didn't have the, you know, the fancy education. I didn't have that, but I had a mother who just asked to speak to the manager. So when I then reach out to CEOs, that's just, you know, the next level is right? to be the same thing. Oh, totally right. That's exactly the kind of a behavior that we built, right? <laughs> now, so, so we understand, I understand, you know, the personal challenge and then you have been forced to find a solution. Then you, you did a lot of work. So you, I suppose you multiply your efforts in order to get the solutions. Can you explain a little bit more what has been the journey from understanding, appreciating the problem, then, you know, becoming the CEO of hearing access innovation. So what has been your journey to find essentially a solution? So it started off very selfishly. You know, this was a problem our family faced and we had to change it because we lived in New York City and you can't live in New York City like the cultural capital of the world and not attend the theater or go to museums. It's just impossible. Yeah. So I had to solve the problem for our family, but there was a certain, t along the journey where I started, where I was solving problems for our particular family I realized that this was much more than our family. First off, companies, I just had a, the other day, a, far, a major pharmacy company, uh, Dwayne Reed Walgreens. They're they think they're going to change pharmacies and add hearing access 
one pharmacy at a time. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, you just <laughs> imagine every single person having to solve this rather than doing this as a systemic change. And so when people would do that, I found it as a personal front to affront to me, like to people with hearing loss. How dare you put this burden on people to change one store at a time? And I was going to solve these problems because I did feel like at, at this point as an adult, I was in a very fortunate place. My, you know, where I was able to have the luxury of doing whatever my daughter needed. And so many incredible people helped us that I felt like if you don't pay it forward, you're a taker and you have to pay it forward. And there's so many people who don't feel like they can do what I do. So by doing it, I paid it forward and I, I ceased being a taker, but solving a problem. And then I realized also my daughter, um, besides individual problems like this theater, that museum, this was so systemic. She wasn't going to stay in her little box of, you know, me being her parent for long. She was going to go out in the world. Yes. So our world, because we traveled so much, was a bigger world. It was the world for, you know, like people say the world, but I actually meant the world. And we had to make sure the whole world was accessible because it shouldn't be that, okay, now I'm going to go to England. I'll notify the country, make everything accessible because seriously, like who has time to go city by city, store by store? So I had to keep bubbling up higher and higher to make it on a more systemic global change, right? So that you didn't have to go store by store, city by city. It had to come from the top. And that's when I started working like that. No, that, that, that's impressive, really impressive. So by the way, how long did it take as a journey? Well, it's been going on. I'm not even close to done, but it's already 20 <laughs> years. This year is 20 years. Wow. Um, but it's, it's my, the way I started to now it's, it's changed. Mm. Like the, I viewing it as I'm along the path, like in the beginning, it was very personal. And now I have enough experience. Like you need certain amount of experience under your belt to keep you, to make you credible. But then there's, when you see some successes, I, I was able to use those successes that this year during the pandemic, I tested waters for a project I'm about to start working on where I now know where the problems are so that I can make the change in the United States stronger and better. But you had to like test the waters and you had to see what you, you have to test. You have to have people want data. They want proof. They don't want to just hear your anecdotal stories. So I had to create evidence that I've now spent the last two years of the pandemic creating so that I can now take the changes I want to the next level. And over time, once you build that credibility, people work with you and they teach you and educate you the, the things you're missing. Yeah, totally. We do speak a lot in this podcast about change, normally applied into the business world, right? When, you, when you're facing such a big, large change initiative. But it's not really different. I mean, change is a change. There are different components, but the problem is, is the same. So essentially, it's facing resistance and anticipating facing fighting and then influencing people to change their behavior, their, their attitudes. But before stepping into that, I want to ask you more so that just for the audience to understand better, you know, what is the solution that you came up with in terms of solving the problem? Well, one, I realized that um, 
people didn't understand whether it was at the high end of the CEOs, presidents, or the people who were interacting with the customers, mm. um, or even within a company, the HR department, right? People didn't understand hearing access. So they saw our disabilities as physical access because you see a wheelchair. You can understand what the issue is, how to get yes. that wheelchair into a building, up a curb, or some, the, the barriers are more obvious, right, than, the, than hearing loss because you can't see hearing loss. And then you have a problem of when people think of hearing loss, they think deaf because they think sign language because, again, they can see it. They can't see how a person with a hearing aid solves the problem because it's wireless things. So I created something called the three-prong approach. So in the Americans with Disabilities Act, there's a term called effective communication. Right. And the problem is nobody knows what these means. And whoever writes these bills comes up with these very generic terms that are meant to be all-encompassing. What mm. all-encompassing means is loopholes. And that's where being in a, you know, a, a legal background helps. People use effective communication as a loophole, meaning, oh, well, we think, and then there's something called a reasonable accommodation. Well, what's reasonable? What's reasonable to you and what's reasonable to me are two different reasonableness. Who's reasonable wins? So I came up with something called the three-prong approach to effective communication to make it really simple. And I, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes. So what it does is it takes, you have hearing loss that's a spectrum. You have from people who think, who may not admit they have a hearing loss. We have a lot of grandparents that way, mm. you know, who deny they have, my mother was that way. She had no hearing loss and you could hear her across the globe screaming into the phone every time she spoke to me because she didn't have a hearing loss and, and, and it was unbearable to hear her talk so loud. Right. Is the denial and of an acceptance, lack of acceptance. Completely. It was, and she just refused until she died to get a hearing aid because mm. she didn't have a hearing loss. Then you have all the way to the other extreme, someone who's deaf and uses sign language. Within right. that other area, there's a lot of gray. You have people who may be wearing hearing aids, maybe hearing aids no longer work for them. So how do you reach that whole group? Because within the 40 million people of the United States who have some form of hearing loss, only 2 million or less use sign language. And that data of the 2 million is 50 years old and likely less because people have gotten cochlear implants who might've been in the deaf sign language group. So the number's going down and the deaf community has no desire to do new data because they don't want people to realize the numbers are declining because ASL is critical to them and it should be provided. Mm. But of the 46 million, which is the vast majority of people with hearing loss, they don't wow. use sign language. So what, so when people offer sign language, it's a joke because that's a part of the solution. It is not the solution because you need it for the 2 million, but the 46 million don't use that. So then what do you do? You have to bring the sound to a person's hearing aid, the audio, which means something called like an induction loop, which brings sound electromagnetically to a person's hearing aid. That's the sign you see behind me on the yes. taxi. Yes, and then that. also turning the sound into readable words, captions. But again, those two things are not interchangeable because if you have residual sound, you want to be able to hear the person. Because if sound was unimportant, we would all be writing notes to each other, right? And that would be irritating. Imagine if this conversation I said to you, we're not going to do sound. You and I are going to just write notes. 
we would be here a really long time, right? That would be, and by the end, within 15 minutes, you'd be annoyed at me, right? It's like a long conversation on, on text message, right? Mm-hmm. At some point you pick up the phone, you say, okay, this is more involved. Text message is great for you telling me what time to meet and where, but for anything more involved, yeah, we too need to complicated, talk. At, we're going to talk. And not only that, I don't want to put everything in writing. So you have, you need all three. So this three prong approach is audio, visual, and qualified interpretation or sign language. They're not, it's not a menu you pick and choose. You need all three to reach the whole spectrum of people with hearing loss. Getting people to understand that and using this three-prong approach where people can understand it. And now when I send this work, this um, diagram, and then if they go on my website, they'll, I'll send you the worksheet. The, the, on my website is janislintz.com is the worksheet where you take the sound source at the top. And then you have to fill in how you convert that sound into the three boxes, audio, visual, qualified interpretation, right? Okay. And then when you realize that, and you have to do that every time there's a sound source. So if you're in a museum, there's multiple. It could be your videos, your depth, your check-in desk, right? You do a, sh- a sheet for every single sound source. People now get it. And then what we did was we um, implemented that into the National Park Service guidelines. And I worked with the National Park Service guidelines to implement this. So now we have a federal guidelines that uses this definition. That helped. But there's some people who still think it doesn't. We'll, and that's the project I'm working on because they will be mighty surprised when I fix the next project. Now, that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's actually that leads me quite nicely with the, with, you know, with the point I was making before, you know, the, the, the resistance, right? So, and I, I want to capture one thing that you said that for me is, is really an eye-opening because I know it, but now that you explain it, I'm thinking more about it, is the fact that those people, they have the physical barrier, the physical um, disability, you know, we see it and then we tend to resonate more with the problem because we see it. But when we don't see it, we probably underestimate the impact of that disability, right? And I think that is such a big message that you, you just shared because it's really an eye-opening. Now, given the complexity of this specific disability, how do you think the corporate war has initially reacted and what and how is reacting now? I mean, now your message is going to more people, to more organizations, to more countries. So I suppose it's probably to be easier than when, he, when you started. Well, maybe not. So what, what has been the response from the corporate people? The, it's been very mixed. So you have a company, for example, like Build-A-Bear Workshop. When I approached Maxine Clark, the CEO, and asked about introducing a hearing aid to her product line, this was years ago, um, her immediate answer in two minutes was yes. Didn't ask okay. the cost, didn't ask anything else. The answer was just, Yes, Yes. this is the right thing to do. That is the right strategy from a CEO, right? To make Build-A-Bear Workshop welcoming to all of its guests, right? She said, it doesn't matter if we make money, this is the right thing to do. That was amazing. But you don't need a lot of CEOs who get it. Then I have other CEOs where CVS is another pharmacy. They don't think they need to add hearing access to their mm. pharmacies. Why? Uh, they have access. Well, there is nothing there. I mean, what are they offering? I mean, I had another company like Bank of America who offered sign language, 
note writing, which is ridiculous because there was that man in Georgia who, mm. without a hearing loss, wrote a note and the person called the cops on him. And he wasn't. He just didn't want someone to hear how much money he took out. So note writing in a bank is precarious, especially, God forbid, you're not white. It places you in harm's way. And I have to say, I'm not positive. I would want to, uh, to write a note in a bank. Then you, the other thing was lip reading, which is ridiculous because you have plexiglass and people wearing masks. How are you reading lips through plexiglass? Like, that's just ridiculous. So these people make up stuff because why? There are multiple reasons. Sometimes, and I'm not saying this is their reasons. These are some of the reasons. They view it as disabilities is about them versus us. They just, mm. they don't get it. It's, it's, it's about those people. Or it's a money issue. They don't want to spend the money. But they don't realize they're leaving money on the table. People with hearing loss represent 48 million people in this country. That's a lot of money. And they tr- don't travel in packs, right? So for in my example, I didn't open a bank. My daughter couldn't get hearing access in Bank of America. I'm not going to bank with Bank of America, right? Because... Why would I do business with that type of bank who has that type of attitude? But there are company after companies that think they don't have to do it. And they sign up with what's really crazy is some of these companies join this disability certification, DIN, and they use that as tick the box. Oh, look, we're certified. Except DIN doesn't mean you are fully accessible. It means you've checked enough boxes and there are enough boxes you can check on physical access and hiring practices that may make you certified, but it does not mean you are ADA compliant. And some companies confuse that. There is no such term as ADA compliance or certified. It doesn't exist. It's like they're meeting just a sufficient requirement. The sufficient minimum. And they think that means they're ADA certified. They're not ADA certified by any stretch of the imagination. And so it's ridiculous. And I, you know what, it's, it's, the ADA was enacted in 1990. We're 32 years after the ADA. And I don't understand why these companies, but I'm about to change that. I'm heading to Harvard's Kennedy School in July. And my goal is to figure out how do we get these companies? And one of the ways I want to do is I want to augment the ADA with another act, just like the Civil Rights Act. Linda B. Johnson augmented the Civil Rights Act with the Voters' Rights Act. Because we need more clarity with the ADA because we have way too many companies not being compliant. Yeah, Janice, just for, for the sake of the audience, they don't know maybe the American regulation. So what the ADA stands for? So the Ameri- ADA is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was enacted in 1990. And it okay. came after um, some people who use wheelchairs couldn't get into the Capitol. And okay. it was ridiculous. They had to literally crawl up the steps to prove the capital was not accessible. They had to create this moment that was obvious to the rest of to others. But it was only when you have this visual moment did suddenly the hypocrisy of this become obvious to people. But the problem is when they enacted this act, people who were hard of hearing were not really involved and hearing aids have changed substantially. The act hasn't kept up with it. The definitions are not clear. People um, evade it. There's no oversight. It's a federally man, uh, unfunded mandate with no teeth. There's nobody like in the United States, we have in some states or cities, rest, 
health inspectors who go around checking restaurants and giving letter grades for restaurants based on their cleanliness and health standard compliance. We don't have that for this act. And therefore, you have to file complaints or file mm. lawsuits. And that shifts the burden to the person with a disability, understanding the process, understanding where to file the complaints. It's complex. But for CEOs, this is bad news. I mean, you look at companies like Starbucks, how many times they've been sued, right? Companies want to get ahead of the curve. Yeah, so then Starbucks comes back, look what they're doing, look how great we are. Then the next person sues them. And then they come back with something else. Rather than Starbucks taking a really proper systematic approach to accessibility for people with hearing loss, they refuse to add these induction loops to their counters. But what's fascinating is Costa Coffee in the UK has induction loops. So if one country has induction loops for um, their baristas and their customers, why isn't Starbucks doing it? And that's yeah. really saying something about the mindset of CEOs. It's some CEOs get it. Sometimes it's based on regulations in that country, but it shouldn't have to be a regulation, right? Companies can avoid massive regulations if they would just do what is common sense, right? We don't wait for regulations for doing, running our companies, but I, when it comes to disabilities, com some companies do, not other companies. Companies like Amtrak added the induction loops to their new trains. That's unbelievable. I would like to see companies following Amtrak's lead and getting ahead of the curve. Same with Delta Airlines. They're adding induction loops to airports as they renovate. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad actually that you are, you know, you are explaining, you know, the experience that you are, you're going through, because I think it's important, you know, to mention there, there are, as always, right, the, you know, the double standards at play. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned as well, what is probably happening behind the door, right? So what's the reason why some CEOs, they are not really implementing these strategies and why others they do. And so many organizations, they talk about the AI, you know, on, on the media, just because it's, is important, is good. They need to show to the to the media, to the clients, to the customer, to the to the shareholders. They're actively implementing these strategies. But I have a sneaky feeling that sometimes it's just a you know, nice certificate or piece of paper, but the reality is, is, is different, as you explained. You Let know, me add something about that. Sorry, sure. Andres. DEI is become the equivalent of saying race. So companies Correct. keep saying they're diverse. But the problem is diversity is not diverse without accessibility for people with disabilities. And diverse is not about race. And it's irritating every time people discuss the word diversity and race is interchangeable. They are not. The They're same not. way the word disability does not mean wheelchair access. The access is not wheelchair access. It's not interchangeable. And so people are misusing it and people are misappropriating the word and diversity includes people with disabilities. And so I've been to numerous of these conferences, DEI. I don't see anybody with a disability. I don't even see the discussion. I see companies hosting these big conferences. Fast Company is one of them. Where is the diversity? And you write to them, no response. Is there anybody on the panel with a disability? No response. Time Warner at one point, you know, hosted a whole thing on DEI the conference room wasn't even accessible for a person with a hearing loss. So these words 
are meaningless. And like you said, they, they sit and they show their certificate. They show, they put somebody in the forefront to make sure that the person is known to be have diversity, right? So it's a visible, either a visible disability or it's a person of a certain race. So it's obvious, but that doesn't mean the person one is an expert. I sat across the table recently where somebody told someone else to get a job because in diversity and they had no experience in diversity. And I, it was because, and it was like, you don't just become a diversity expert by the color of your skin, right? It, it's kind of like, I have a cell phone. That does not make me an expert in cell phones, right? I, I, and just because I own it, the same with hearing aids. You have to hire people who are experts. And just using symbolic people as heads of diversity is not acceptable because that's really not the meaning of diversity. No, and to, to be, yeah, I, I 100% agree. To be fair, I think, you know, people like you, Janice, they are also an organization in business. Of course, they can come, you know, and help from a consulting advisory standpoint as well, the organizations to change their approach on the AI. So, but clearly it would be ideal having someone really understand the diversity in that way. And another thing that, in my opinion, building on, on your point, Janice, is the fact that diversity is also neurodiversity, which is another element of diversity. Absolutely. That's another big problem right now. Because, you know, and that's another kind of diversity that is not easily to recognize. Actually, even worse than hearing sometimes, because the, the neurodiversity is something that you don't really show up. And I know that many, many leaders, they don't really think about neurodiversity. So they're treating people and they're communicating with everyone in the same way, not understanding, appreciating that people sometimes, they have some neurodiversity. They don't know how to understand things. Maybe they don't know how to react. And that's another problem. Yes, actually, I met with a friend who um, was speaking on neurodiversity because she was neurodiverse. Um, and I met with her this weekend. In my opinion, I think what we're going to find out is people, um, all customers, right, are, are going to, if we sat and went, made everybody go through testing, right, every mm -hmm. single person, let's say in the United States, all had to go through testing. I think we would not find everybody to be the same with exceptions. Instead, I think we would be all, we'd have, let's say, making up a number, 20 groups, and we would be kind of like dividing everybody into the 20 groups mm. and everybody would have some quote issue because when you sit and really get into a conversation with this with friends and you discuss memory issues, you discuss reading issues, you discuss, um, you know, social engagement issues, learning issues too, right? Learning issues. But when you start discussing this with people, it turns out more people have these issues than people realize oh, and now they're not and so when you start categorizing people through testing right i think we would find out that a lot of people break down into these groups and it's really the exception to not be part of this and so when companies do send their message through multi different channels um to reach people taking in all these different elements they are broadening their message so when they're making it audible and visual and accessible to people, neurodiverse, not making it too overwhelming, you know, when these museums open up and they have so much, I went to one museum, it had four different videos playing at the same time, right next to each other. 
There is no way anybody could hear four different videos. Oh, and then a film adjacent, right? So these architects who are designing these buildings are not taking into account, forget about neurodiversity, human beings. I mm. think we need to change the perception of how anyone can process this and, and, and stop focusing on their, their career to make new and cool and focus on the customer. So when we focus on the customer and what the customer needs, it changes how we do things. We pay more attention. Yes. And, and the problem is some of these buildings are focusing on the architect's careers rather than on the customer. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Right. So, okay. So that, that, that's great. And, and by the way, back, back to the point of neurodiversity, and I do agree with you, there are more people with neurodiversity issues than we think, but for a reason, because people then don't necessarily speak about that. They don't want to talk about it because it might be thinking about, oh, you know, there will be shame or I will be treated differently. So there is an element of judgment and bias that people, they don't want to come across, right? That's why they don't speak up about their own problems. So that's another complication actually about that. Right. So I want to go back to to solutions, right? Because I mean, the induction loop, you explain it, it, it's clearly, you know, a great tool that it can be implemented, especially, you know, at the consumer level when there are um, visitor, customers, et cetera. Is there any other strategies, tools that CEOs should think about when it comes to hearing access? It's thinking of this entire spectrum. It's hiring experts. So a lot of times, one of the things that I see is they'll, the person will turn to me and said, oh, we asked Joe, Joe wears a hearing aid. Joe is an expert in Joe's experience. Mm. He is not an expert in all access and may not have any idea how to work his own hearing aids. Plus it puts this stigma onto Joe that he's now doing some job that is not his job. Yes. And we need to hire experts and having, have, and making sure the person knows. And also thinking that just because someone uses a wheelchair, they are an expert in all disabilities makes absolutely no sense. We would never ask one race to make a decision about another race, but yet with disabilities, we do. Mm. And the reason in disabilities this doesn't work, besides the inappropriateness of it, is when you do physical access, you're usually an architect or an engineer because you're deciding how big, how wide, weight-bearing, right? When you're yes. doing visual access, a lot of this now is about making websites um, accessible. So that's a coding issue. When you're doing hearing access, you tend to be a lawyer by training because you're defining what does effective communication mean. And neurodiversities tend to be psychologists, right? There's some psychological training. I have yet to meet the engineer who is the software designer, who is the lawyer, who is the psychologist, right? <laughs> you need all of those skills. So it doesn't exist. So what ends up happening is people hire because they can't get their certificate of occupancy without the physical access. They hire the person who's an expert in that. And then the person says, oh yeah, I could do everything else. They figure they slap on a little ASL, a little captioning, good to go, but it doesn't work. And so people are hiring people who are claiming to be experts in things they don't know. There's, you see this, especially in the travel world. There are a bunch of experts who have visual impairments touting their experts in hearing loss. They have no idea. And when you really look to see what's happening, there's no access for people with hearing loss. Mm. And the other problem is they'll have to, when they're doing the 
access because they need that certificate of occupancy sometimes the budget gets tight they finish the whatever they need for the certificate of occupancy and because hearing access falls under programmatic they exit from the budget say they'll deal with it later and never do that's right. again cleaning up the ada of how do you deal with that um because that's a that's a problem and so these are the things that the ceos need to know the other thing is hearing access is not about for an induction loop pulling wire so a lot of times what people are doing when they do put the induction loop is they hire they have the contractor electrician put it in and they're like oh i could do this because it's pulling wire i do know how to do math but it's more than pulling math it's adding the access to the website it's it's the signage understanding that they throw up a sign they don't know they don't know what the rules are they don't understand the requirements there's a lot more there's training they leave all that out then they wait for people to complain and they take it as doing access by feedback now yeah. when they decorate it they hire a consultant they hire a decorator but you don't do access by feedback <laughs> that's yeah. like just a ridiculous way to run your business well, totally. And uh, it's funny because you mentioned essentially having the right skills to, to implement these strategies from the top. So designing the strategy and implementing is not just having the, the, the small technical skill like pulling the wires, right? It, that's all about inclusion, actually, because inclusion means including everyone with different skills. That's exactly the same thing that we need to do when we come, when we approach this problem, having the right skills in the right place. That's why I think the message of having expert consultants that come in helping designing this from from the get-go is not just you know at the end of the process or the value chain i think is critical that's a great message uh, janice i have a last question about your journey because i mean you started as you mentioned it's been a long journey but you you're far by having complete this journey so what's the next step for you for your organization in order to vehicle more this message what is still missing that you still need to do um one i need to um augment the americans with disabilities act because mm. the access should not be dependent on janice lynn's working company by company mm. this is not an efficient methodology and i need to make sure that god forbid i get hit by a truck that this continues and the way the it's legacy. working is right it, i need a legacy and this is not working and the legacy is going to be fixing the law and mm. So one of the ways I'm doing that is I'm going to Harvard's Kennedy School starting this July to figure out how to fix this. And that's part of what I've been working on during the pandemic is seeing what the, the resistance with companies is and compiling the data so that I have enough data from enough companies to show even when you file the complaints with them, they're still not implementing it. Mm. And that's problematic. And they are not going to be happy because I'm going to be filing. Like I have data and it is amazing what people put in writing. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when you're really good at, at paper trailing, it is amazing what you build the database and, and I'm going to show what people are doing. They're not implementing it. And even when you do try and you follow the path that the ADA carves, it still doesn't work. And these are big, and I've gone after big companies and, and using this and as proof of concept. And so that's my next step is creating this next legacy to fix the ADA. Yeah, it's validating essentially what we already know, what you know by also specific research and data that can 
be even more powerful and be more influential into the conversation you're having with the big corporates. Love that. I think um, it's great because you know we discuss about one of the most important topics these days, but also I honestly have to say, you know, your dedication, your passion, your commitment for for the cause is remarkable. I have to tell you. So I, I you know, I love your again the passion, you know, and how you speak says highly, you know, says a lot about you know the journey you are going through and you are not over. So really, thank you so much for what you're doing. I think it's super important, Janice. Um, thank you. I love what I do, and you know, it, it impacts our family. I can see that. And I'm great. Look, I have to say my daughter went to one Ivy League university. She's now in her second university. She worked for a major bank. Um, she's going to be working now in sustainable finance. She's doing amazing work in ways that nobody envisioned she would be able to do if I had listened to quote these experts. Oh, so she is my proof of concept, so to speak. She's following her dreams. So this is my payback. I got what I wanted. Um, her hearing loss has, we've been able to do whatever it is we want to do. And only our dreams are the limits. So that's what I wanted for her. And that's what she's doing. So this is my payback because I want to see more people doing that. I don't want her to be the exception. I want her to be the rule. Of course, she's my daughter, so she's brilliant. But I don't really think, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. I think most kids just need opportunity and these artificial limitations placed on them are just absurd. Totally. Well, that's terrific. And actually you, you read my mind because the, the last question was about your, your daughter and you explain, you know, where she, you know, what she had been through and where she is now. So that's just amazing. And that's exactly, as you said, is a proof of concept. Janice. So I would like to ask a few other questions. The last one to understand more, uh, the personality and some of the questions are super important because you have been through a great, an important journey. So I think people are also interested to understand what you learn, you know, in this journey. So one question is, what is the number one lessons that you learn, you know, along all this incredible journey? One thing. Show up and follow up. If I could have that as my mantra, that would be it. Show up and follow up because if you're not in the conversation, you're not part of the conversation. And follow up because if you don't, people are on to their next thing. And it's not Vernon Jordan, the esteemed civil rights leader, told me when I contacted him for a meeting that he, re he responded after four um, emails, which he felt was the appropriate number. He said, if it's not worth your time to follow up with me, it's not my, worth my time to meet with you. Beautiful. So show up and follow up. Beautiful. And that shows tenacity and resilience, which is very important these days. So I love that. On the other end, is something that maybe you, you would have done differently in this journey now that you learn so many things or, or not? Um, I would have done my college education 100% differently. My kids have that benefit. Okay. But I would have done a liberal arts degree. Um, I think learning how to write, read, speak is the most important um, things you get from an education. You can learn anything else, mm. but you cannot, learning how to write, read, and speak is critical. And so I wish I, instead of doing an undergraduate marketing degree, I had done a liberal arts degree. I'm kind of sort of going back by going to Harvard and, and like remedying it on the back end. <laughs> it's but closing it the loop been, to some extent. Yeah, I'm closing that, exactly, closing the loop. 
but I would have liked if I had started that way yeah. from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, maybe it would have helped a little bit more. Okay, that's that's awesome. Now, in terms of performance, so you 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 have achieved incredible performance because just the fact that you have been able to maintain this journey going forward and achieving what you achieve, I'm sure that you have so many insights. You know what what really helped you to achieve this level of performance. So if you think about what has been the number one factor for this incredible tenacity, grit, you know, resilience, and ability to achieve your own results, what has been one thing that really helped, in your opinion? Well, you know that it's my passion. Um, it's the passion. You know, it, it's impossible to speak with me and not hear the passion. I, I, it's just the way I speak, right? But exactly. I told my kids this. When you pick a career or whatever it is you do, if you do not love reading the trade journals online or, you know, actual reading material, you are in the wrong field mm. because you have to be on top of your game, knowing everything there is in the field, right? Yes. You need to know if there are dramatic changes. And if you can't be bothered reading and learning from what's happening, pick a different career that you can, because when you do, it lets you really learn and do better because you're on top of it. And, and then you have that passion, right? Because that passion comes not, it's not a learned behavior. It's because you really love what you do. And when you love what you do, you do more than the, the person next to you, right? You don't even realize you're doing it. You just do because instinctually you're excited about it. You can't do it without that passion. It's physically impossible. I've never seen anyone who goes above and beyond without the passion. No, and I am with you. And actually, there have been a lot of studies from neuroscience that exactly confirm that. Now, you don't, I mean, passion itself is not enough sometimes. You need to develop other things, you know, like we mentioned, the drive. The Hence, going back to school and learning to read, and write, and also speak. learning the skills. <laughs> so the mastery of skills, absolutely. So it's a combination of many different things, but passion is the number one. I think that's a great message for, for the audience. If you're thinking that your passion doesn't, doesn't matter, it does. It does for the exactly reason that Jenny is just explaining. Now, last question. I know you have a different view on this. We are normally asking what has been, you know, the most impactful book that you have ever read. And I'm, I'm really curious to, to hear what you are going to say about this. Well, of course, I'm going to, you know, mention the book I'm, I'm recently in and that, you know, tells my story, The Success Factor by Ruth, Dr. Ruth Gautian. But And by the way, we had Ruth in the, in the podcast, so people know Ruth. Oh, right. So um, I forgot about that. But the thing that is different about me is I need information and I want to have a conversation. So reading a book is frustrating sometimes to me because I can't ask a question. Like I take notes and I have questions and you can write an email and maybe they'll respond. I love going to lectures where people are touting their book, maybe reading their book ahead of time so that I can ask the, the meaningful question to me or whatever they're speaking about relating it to my work. So for me, that live going to lectures is the game changer for me. And I go to lectures, not just in my field. I go to lectures about um, climate change, sex trafficking, you name it. Anybody who is notable in their field, like who is really making great, um, great strides. I learned from like, it, I, Ruth had a, on a speaker, um, Zaza Pachuli, uh, you know, from the, I'm not a basketball player. I'm embarrassed. I think it was the Warriors. And 
really smart guy, right? And so when I'm learning from being in a session with him because I can ask questions. Yes. And right, and that's basketball, which would seemingly have nothing to do with hearing loss, but it does because it's a mindset and how he achieves high performance can then, I can learn from that. But for me, it's more about not just reading it. It's about having the conversation. That's love the way that. I learn best. It may not be for everybody, but I love going to lectures. That's part of why I'm excited about going to school because I get to then meet the professors, ask the questions, hear from the other incredible students and take that in. I need the, I need the exchange more than just reading in, on a piece of paper. And it makes sense. And in books, most of the time, are, are sort of unfinished work for us, right? Because we learn something, but then we want to go deeper. We want to ask questions, as you said. So I think you, you made a very solid point. So Janice, where people should go if they want to find out more about your story and more importantly, what you do? So to, uh, three different places. You have my consulting business is hearingaccess.com. My advocacy is on JaniceLintz.com and of course on LinkedIn at Janice Lintz. Fantastic. So Janice, thank you so much for being on the show today because I think it's been an amazing message and an amazing story and I hope that so many people can hear that. Thank you, Andrea. Um, this was great. I really loved um, speaking. Really learned a lot. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode and I really hope you got some valuable insights today that you can apply them in your business. As always, I love to hear your thoughts about this episode, so what you like most, but also what else you want me to cover in the future episodes. This podcast is not about me, so I want to make sure that you get what you need in order to be more successful. Drop me an email at andrea at andreapetrone.com for that, or find me on LinkedIn and mention that you listened to this episode. I'll appreciate it. And if you want to support this show, the best way is to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast, but also to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. This will make our episodes more visible so we can impact more people. And finally, go to my website, www.andreapetrone.com, so you can learn more about me and my work with leaders and organizations. But more importantly, you can take the free assessment and get an instant score of your leadership level and compare your results with world-class leaders. It really takes less than 10 minutes. And by the way, on the website, you can also subscribe for our weekly newsletter where we summarize the insights of all our podcast episodes. Check there as well the previous articles. I think you're going to love them. All right, so thank you again for being here, and I hope to see you next time. Bye for now.